Well, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of the Humans of Agriculture podcast. If you can sense that I'm a little bit more upbeat, maybe, or hopefully I do come across each week as a little bit upbeat, but this one is a great chat. It's one of those ones that you have with someone and you walk away just feeling immediately energised. And although Erica Halliday has been through quite a few different challenges and experiences, she just approaches life with just this sense of optimism, which is honestly just so infectious. And I love how it's coated in a bit of realism as well. And she talks about the different challenges of they put so much time and energy and effort into reading up the Angus stud, but then actually making decisions and little things like saving embryos so when the dry periods end, they can actually continue their genetic gains, which they've worked so hard for. I also really loved how she's never really settled into just having one job. Today, she's the chair of Angus Australia and has a few other different roles as well involved with rural aid, amongst others. But she's done that her whole career, and I found that actually really refreshing that you can actually be involved in the farm business nearly part-time while actually juggling other things as well. I just genuinely really enjoyed this chat. I thought it was so fun, so upbeat, and it would be rude of me not to give a little shout-out and a mention just to how much Erica loves Carl Linders as well. I feel like we might have to get him to do a little video message and send it on to her. Enough from me. Let's get into it. You've come back from a, a little trip overseas. How are you feeling now? It's it's the back end of the year, so I know lots of people are actually hitting a slump, but I feel like you've definitely got this zest and energy, which is infectious. <laughs> oh, it's a bit of a sense of humour coming back to face what we're facing, I think. like We knew we were heading into probably another drought, and we've been preparing for that before we went overseas, and our kids looked after the place while we were gone. So we knew we, we had this sort of four-week gap of like not worrying about a thing. And so we've just, like I said, come back, gone for a drive round and good uppercut and slap about the face and away we go. Yeah, here we go again. How did you go removing yourself from the business for four weeks? Did you actually manage to stay out of it for most of the time? Yeah, so um, luckily our kids, they're 22 and 20 and our first thought was that they were going to kill each other while we were away, but they seemed to get on really well and... We just tried very much just to let it all go and it worked really well. So I would love to know, and I reckon our listeners would be interested, coming back onto the farm after a month away, like in your head you probably had a bit of an idea of what things might look like, but can you describe what it was actually like and how has the farm changed in what is a short amount of time but a month can be quite significant at this time of year? A month is very significant at this time of year and we're pretty big on forecasting and budgeting and we did our feed budgets a while out and knew that this was not pretty and then have just taken on a pretty pessimistic attitude when we got the long-term weather forecast from Carl Lunders. He's a pessimist, but, it, you know, it's really good. And we're like, okay, so this is worst-case scenario. We know worst-case scenario, so let's just plan for that. And I'd like to say that we had wholly planned for that, but we haven't. So, you know, we've come back and we're like, okay, we're still need to adjust, make some big adjustments here coming in and, and sort of plan for the worst and hope for the best a bit. We've actually had Big Carl on a couple of times for all, all things weather matters. He's, have you met him? He's an absolute character. I'd love to meet him because, you know, every other weather forecaster goes, it's sunny out there, guys, great. And, and he goes, oh, guys, it's sunny. There's no rain. It's bad. It's bad, you know. So he does have a real empathy for farmers. And, yes, I would love to meet him too because... He makes me feel as though he's in it with you and, like, he feels for you and he's doing everything he can to be realistic but give you, you know, hope. Yeah. 
I'll let him know because we, we often get him in for a little bit of a seasonal update of what's happening. But he should be one to get at the World Angus Forum, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. But oh, Carl would be a, so good. That is a great idea. So on my cruise every morning, I'll look like, where are we going today? And then I'd go, oh, here's an email from Carl. Should I open that? <laughs> <laughs> and I did a few times. So I just knew that I, I didn't want to just come back to cold turkey. So we got the odd phone call from the kids from the Cali Yards going, this is hard. Like, you know, cows moving in the background. And my emails from Carl. So they were the two things that sort of kept us real while we were away. Yeah. And how have the kids, I guess they didn't really have a choice. They had to step up. They had to get on. Yeah. Have they told you how the experience was for them and, and what they actually gained out of it? Yeah. It was amazing for them because we basically went, you guys are in charge. And so daughter had two weeks of uni. So she was, and my son was just in charge and working with the people that we always work with. And yeah, it just, He's really stepped up and taken sort of ownership. In fact, we've come back now and he's telling us what to do. So that's good. That's good. Succession. It yes. might, you might have that month every year. <laughs> well, about two days out, we rang them and we said, oh, look, we thought we might take another month. And they're both in the background going, no, come home now. Like, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> so the farm you're on is your family's farm, fifth generation. Yeah. I'd be really interested to, Erica, I guess, turn back the clock a little bit. What was your childhood like on the farm? What were you guys running and, and what was it that, yeah, I guess resonated with you as a kid? It was idyllic. I would go with my dad every day. I loved and still do things in my life that my life pivots around are basically family, cattle and dogs and horses and that was my childhood. And so I was just a pig in mud. And they were continually trying to say as I got older, you know, go do this, go do that, you know, they because my dad was older, he was 23 years older than my mum. So I think they thought that I, I was hanging about because dad was older and I was there to help him. But, yeah, the more they pushed me away, the more I wanted to come back. So there's some weird psychology going on there. But, you know, I did love it and I've always loved it. But I get what they were trying to do. They were trying to get me to choose it and to experience all these other things in life that were out there. But ultimately for me, there was no choice. I, I had decided earlier on that, this is what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, here I still am. And that's the point I'm at with our kids and my sister's daughter as well. They're all like, we want to come home to the to the farm. I'm like, go off and do something, you know, go, go away for 10 years, go, go do it. But it's like history is repeating. Like the more I try and push them away, the more they're like here. So, you know, but they will, they're going, they're going off to do things. <laughs> They're leaving the nest. How do you go with that, though? Because it must be like such an interesting, I guess, contradiction in the sense of you're now your parents as oh. your kids are you. Oh, I know. that You just don't think that that's going to happen. But here you are, and all of a sudden you have a lot more empathy for your parents and what they went for. But you also know the same feeling that, you, you know, people quite often discount how young people feel, but... I know that their feelings are, are just as real, but I just want them to, again, if this is a life that they want, they have to choose it because if you don't choose it, I think it's a pretty tough gig. Yeah. comes with lots of rewards, but there's a lot of elements out of the control, isn't it? It is. And I spent my whole life going, you know, get into agriculture. You know, it's such a great career opportunity. And it's the first time in my life that I've sort of gone, you know, now we're at the coalface and, and we've gone through these tough years and then looking at going through them again, I'm sort of saying, and everywhere we go in the world, you see these people and they're bankers and they're IT and they're, you go and there's people sitting in coffee shop all the time at, you know, weekdays. I'm going, this is how normal people live. <laughs> but 
I've just lived that for a month and I couldn't wait to get back out and put my boots on and get to the cattle yard. So, you know, call it Stockholm Syndrome or whatever you will, but it's about living your passion and living your dream. And, and maybe that's harder and you don't make as much money, but, you know, it's at the end of the day, you can't take all of that with you, can you? So you may as well live your dream. Absolutely. So what were the things that you did when your parents were trying to push you away? You were obviously keen to be on the farm, but what did you dabble in? What were the things that I guess were keeping you occupied before you? Yeah, could actually... so oh, you know, I really strayed far. I went and worked as a project officer for Angus Australia, <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> and then I had a great ten years working as a business facilitator and business coach for RCS. Yeah, that was a hoot. I really got a kick out of helping other people, and that was really big mind shift for me because I remember sitting down with Stan Parsons, and he said to me. Eric Ree said, there's a difference between telling people what to do like a consultant and then helping people help themselves. And he said it's so much more powerful teaching a man to fish than fishing for them. Yeah, and so for me that was really powerful and I learnt that then and that sort of now moving on into my roles on as a director on Rural Aid and Angus Australia, I can really put that into play because I know it's not all up to me to solve every problem. It's about... It's about facilitating and using the powers of all the people in the room to solve problems and it's just the solutions are so much better. I'm really interested in this because it's something I think about a lot. I guess I, I do a fair bit of reading, listen to a few other podcasts as well. Was there a pivotal moment when you went from being the person that was trying to do it all, have your hands in all the different pies to actually, yeah, that point of release of empowering others? Oh, yeah, and a point of release is a really great way to say it because before I had this huge responsibility of trying to solve oh, everybody's problems, you know, and once I got to that point where, yeah, where I realised that really it's, it's up to other people and you're just helping them help themselves, it was freedom for me. And the point, like when I said to you, I sat down with Stan Parsons, like we were having dinner at RCS and he'd come over, it was at Yapoon, and Terry McCosker was there and, and Stan Parsons and I was in my mid-twenties and he probably doesn't even remember who I am but I remember that moment very profoundly when we're having dinner so yeah it's one of those things one of those crossroad things isn't it it's amazing isn't it and like I was only having a conversation with someone recently on the podcast and I said oh there was a moment in 2018 where I met him funnily enough he was a facilitator and yeah it was I said what he kind of enabled in me now was that point like where I was just reaching up the top of the hill and the conversations that we had and the way that he brought me into the space actually yeah. then allowed that momentum to start and yeah. ha- and build that confidence. Yeah. So I think you realise probably the effect that you can have on, on other people. Another one, big one for me was Lynn Sykes when she basically said, you don't have to solve the problems and it's okay for things not to be okay, like for things to even leave and not be solved because solving everything isn't isn't the solution in a lot of ways. You have to work through things. And as she used to say, you have to open the can of worms. Well, you know, there's a bit of, a lot of people have a lot of fear around that. But again, if you've got the belief that it doesn't all have to tie up neatly at the end in a neat bow, everyone has to have told their truth. And that's the starting point. So you've got the benefits, I guess, of being a facilitator. But what about learning off and getting a, a front row seat into other people's farm businesses? What was that like as a young person? A true privilege, an absolute privilege. And I took that very seriously and I wanted to do my very best for those. And we made some amazing leaps in those families. But 
that wasn't me. That was the process, and and I was just running the process. But it was an enormous privilege to be in that position of trust with those people. I, I love, I loved it, and I, I mean, we always laugh, and sometimes they're really sort of quite emotional situations. But I find humour is a way through for me, and everyone loves that break. So we would, we would laugh, and I remember my boss coming at one stage, he going. What are you doing? This isn't a comedy act, but but you know we we made ground as well, so we had fun while we we're doing it. But we yeah we solved a lot of important issues. Yeah, you broached those really difficult and probably uncomfortable conversations with a bit of a laugh, and then a no, but there's there's quite a little bit of a serious intent behind this as well. <laughs> yeah, I know, but sometimes you just got to laugh at life. It's like this other drought coming to you. I mean, you know. It's heartbreaking, but you just got to have a bit of a giggle with it and find other people too that feel the same way. You know, you're not alone. And if you just, I have a neighbour here. So during the last drought, she used to ring me up. And we used to help each other out a lot and occasionally sit on our, our ramps and have a beer at the end of the day and just, but she'd ring me up and there'd be nothing. And then she'd just say one swear word. And then I'd say it back to her. And she'd say, good chat. I'd say, good chat, you know, and we, and we hang up again. But just the fact that we both knew that it was bad together and we were just going, this is crap, you know, how can it be this bad? But, yeah, so that was, you know, for me, one of the things that, that got us both through the drought. The coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. I want to come and chat to that more, but I do want to know, so you had amazing experiences with RCS, then the opportunity, the door came to come back into the family business. Were you with Stu, your husband at the time? No, I wasn't with Stewie at the time. So I was working part-time for Angus Australia. I was doing facilitation part-time and working with my dad. I've never had a job that goes <laughs> nine by five days a week. Probably says something about me. I love I love variety and, and um, I love being busy. So, um, yeah, no, so but then Stu, Stu came into the part, into my life and then he worked as a vet and he worked away at a place called Musselbrook and mm-hmm. I was his vet nurse as well for a while too in all of that very badly trained, wasn't actually a vet nurse. I was more like his secretary, which is even worse because I have a lot of trouble dotting I's and crossing T's. Or as he says to me, I dot T's and cross I's. But, you know, (laughs) so I was there doing his paperwork and he'd be hanging over me going, ah, no, that's a nine, not a six, and just, you know. But we had that time where we worked together in his growing business, yeah. Oh, my God. You're one of these people that I'm going to say it's – I don't even know if organised chaos is the right word. Chaos in the sense of it's just things moving everywhere, but you're one of the people that just gets things done as well. So you're a true asset. Uh, I don't know about that because there's all this stuff there about multitasking and how it's really bad, but I'm one of those people that will arrive one minute two or one minute past, but because if I've got five minutes, I'm like, oh, and Stu calls me Justin. He goes, I'll just do this or I'll just do that. And I think, well, what can I fit in those five minutes? That's really valuable. I'll just... You know, and it's a fault. It is a bad, bad fault, and I know it. Well, and then, or you end up being like, oh, I'll just call that person, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, like, now I can't get them off, and it's like, I called you, and how do I get rid of you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like I say, bad fault. How did you guys go managing that transition? Because is Stu in the business full-time now? Uh, yes, Stu's in the business full-time now. So when Stu and I first got together, Dad was in his <laughs> 80s, late 80s, and it was Dad and I running the business and I was working away a lot and things and the lovely man that we had working for us all our life had got cancer and he was very sick and unfortunately that eventually took his life. And so we are at a stage where the, the business itself was starting to, things were starting to break and stuff. 
And I know that there was a bit of an expectation there that I bring Stu back into the family business. But having had the experience of working in family business facilitation, I didn't want that to happen. I had seen so many times where the son-in-law or daughter-in-law was like an easy target to blame. Like, oh, that fence fell down. Stu didn't shut that gate, you know, all that sort of stuff. Not saying my parents would have done that, but I just didn't want either of them in that position. And so Stewie, there was a moment in all of that, talking about crossroads, where uh, 2 o'clock in the morning and Stewie had a dog board in. It was a rottweiler. He had distemper, which is not good, and his owner had been drunk for two days and decided to bring him in at 2 o'clock in the morning, still drunk, with a 65-kilo dog that was very sick and quite angry, and he left. And we're trying to get a vein in this dog, and he's bigger than me. And I'm trying to hold him and get the vein. And Stewie's meant to put that. Anyway, it's, it's very difficult. And I had my eyes closed going, just get the vein, just get the vein. And I opened my eyes. Stewie's looking at me and he says, I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't want to be a vet. And I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to be a farmer. And I'm like, great timing. This is, you know, great timing. So it, it hit the next day we quit. And we went and leased it. At the same time, I'm talking about the dad was this age and everything was happening. We went and leased a state forest not far from my family home, which is basically a pine plantation, gorges, blackberries and black snakes. And we were in that for the next eight years while I was working independently with my dad. So they were probably looking at it going, that well, they were. It was crazy. But there's a line from the man from Snowy River you probably know, and it says, go back to the low country, son, and earn the right. And that was sort of what we wanted to do. We wanted to do on our own. We didn't just want to take over my family's business. And I think that worked, strangely. Knowing what you know now, and and I think you come out with such... That's a lot of information very quickly. No, it's absolutely fine. But So with what you know now and also having that, I guess, that gathered knowledge of all the different families and things you do, is there things you would have done differently with that transition into the business or what? how you guys actually... I guess, got your your real start? Look, I don't know financially it was great. It actually had the most amazing return on asset, but that's because the asset was not great. But I really believe in bringing something to the business, not taking from the business. So I think in our respect, that's what we were doing. And in the end, we bred up in the state forest with all, it was just the most wild country you can imagine. But we ended up breeding 800 sort of really fuzzy long-horned Herefords and Devons and out of Mickey Bulls and stuff we couldn't muster in for eight years. But there were 800 of them. And we ended up trading them over for 200 Angus Heifers and then doing a lease arrangement around Walker. And when we eventually did merge with my family business, we bought that to the business to make it even bigger. Yeah. It's really interesting. I only know of probably one person, I think, like who I know of in my circles, who when they came back to the family business, it was if you're coming back into the business, it's you bring an enterprise or you bring something else actually back in because you need to pay your way. Yeah. It's really interesting because I think, it, well, in your case, you would have learned so much as well, but actually the business is better off having that diversity or new skill set or learnings or whatever it might be through coming in that, that way. Yeah, and I mean, I guess my parents weren't sort of thinking that way. They are thinking, I've got this business handed over. And work it that way. But that was our idea was that we bring something to the family business and merge the two. And it wasn't nearly as big as the family business, but, you know, it was our contribution. And we felt, I think, you know, saying to my kids, now go away and do something for 10 years. Well, they have that opportunity too. And at the same time, we work at it from our end and make the business bigger and have more arms for if they want to. 
if they don't want to, that's fine. That's that's my retirement fund. I'll go buy a beach house with that. <laughs> <laughs> Was there pressure for you, like with your dad's age and the business and stud? I guess like you're coming in as the fifth generation. There's a lot kind of riding on it, but a very quick transition as well. Yeah, look, and I didn't feel it that way. For me, it was just what I loved to do and I loved to work with my mum and dad and the whole family had this sort of passion around that the beef industry and particularly the Angus Breed and the stud. And, you know, I, I know going through, having been through the RCS course many times, you know, there's a couple of lines they have. They say, you know, you can't have sacred sight and you can't have sacred cows. I had both and I've never managed to let that go and I'm fine with that because it means so much to me that that's part of, my happiness is is that sacred site and those sacred cows. So, can you just elaborate? What do you mean by sacred cows and sacred sites? Oh, I guess when you're talking about a business, if you're really attached to a particular block of land, but it does, you know, you could sell it and buy two more blocks somewhere else that would make your business more healthy and financially more viable. Then yep. you should let go of the fact that you have to stick with that land just because it's been in your family. Gotcha. And same with the cows, you know, sacred cows. So if you were matching your stocking rate to your carrying capacity, like at the moment I would have sold all my cows. But I know, again, I'm flawed person, Ollie. I can't do that. I am very attached to particular the core of the cows anyway. I've got to the point where I've got ones I know I can get rid of, but the core is staying here. Well, I think it's such, like it's such a yeah. challenge, isn't it, in farming in the sense of, like, yes, it's cyclical and, and the easy part is if you look at everything as kind of widgets and everything can move. But then the reality is that you guys have spent decades and generations breeding up bloodlines and genetics and, like, you can't just disperse of that because that's the, the prosperity of the business into the future. Yeah, well, it, it, you get into branding then and we believe that we have a brand and we have something special. But, yeah, I mean, you do need to be smarter about it. You do need to have mobs that you can go and you just need to have a core breeding stock or tank of embryos if it comes down to that. But, yeah, for me, they're ours. I'm not going to go buy them from someone else. They're the, going to be the ones that I made because, I, yeah, or we made because, yeah, we're very proud of them and they're ours, yeah. So what are some of those other decisions that you're, you've been making over the years? Because I love your optimism and your approach, but knowing that you guys are potentially coming into a, a difficult time, I think we can touch on maybe the challenges and, and what actually happened through that last drought to shape those perspectives. But yeah. how are you guys prepared today for what might be some uncertain and kind of volatile seasons? Yeah, well, look, the first thing that we did do was we sold those mobs of cattle quite early in the piece that, that we knew were surplus to requirements. That was going on maybe Carl being in a bit of a bad mood when he did his uh, forecast. And so we didn't This was in the last far. few weeks, was yeah. it? Or we didn't quite go far enough. We went, you know, what are the chances, Weatherman, that he's 100% right? But he's usually 100% right. So, yeah, but we did sell a lot. So we sold about a third of our stock now. So we've just got back up to our carrying, our stocking rate matching our carrying capacity for like what we consider long term. And now we've cut back a third again. And depending on the rolling average of rainfall, which isn't looking great, we'll, we'll need to do a bit more of that. But we've also have allocated, we've got confinement areas now, so we take the cattle off the country so the country doesn't get flogged and we just basically have already bought the cotton seed and the canola to hay to go into that situation. But it's just depressing. Honestly, it's depressing, yeah. And like that reliance, I guess, on 
experts like Carl and others. Is it so? Yeah, you sold some stock recently, and then that kind of uncharacteristic rainfall event happened in the last few weeks. Like, yeah, do you sit there and dwell on what could have been, or you just kind of go, "Well, we made a decision." No, no, never. So there's a saying that one of my sister's husband says, and he says, "Better to be sorry you sold than sorry you didn't." But it's just no, it's gone. Let it go. And yeah, they're one-off rainfall events. But Carl was saying, "This is just a one-off rainfall event. Don't get excited about this." So I was, yeah. I bet you get a Christmas card from this guy. He's like running my life at the moment. Oh, I'll text him straight afterwards and say, mate, you need to, <laughs> I'll give him your number and say, you need to call this person. As a, like, hey, you can have football players and stuff called to wish you happy birthday. Carl can. Yeah. <laughs> it was Sandra Ison, who's from Hay, and she's been part of this series as well. And she said her, it was a father in law said, sell and repent, but sell. And yes. that was their advice. And they've stuck to yep. that as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And once they're gone, they're gone. Just let it go. Yeah. Just identify which ones you can sell. That's the important thing to do. Do that right. You know, don't send the donor cow off with the crappy cows. That's, as long as you've done that, you know what, you feel okay about it. And it doesn't matter. I mean, the price, yes, okay, it doesn't matter. But it does matter in your head. But if you make those decisions early, it's not as bad. But, you know, here I am having to sell more cows and it's, it's going to be crap. But everything balances out in that respect. Just run it over five or ten years and, and just go yeah, to the average. That, that's it. That's it. I want to ask you about the different natural disasters and, and things you guys have had through your areas. <laughs> and yeah. well, now, now I'm channeling my car, oh, the pessimist. No, I have, I have friends in Victoria and South Australia, particularly through Angus, and I've just I rang them up the other day because this is meant to be countrywide this dry, but of course they're still having quite a good season. So I rang them up the other day and I said, I'm just letting you know that we can't be friends anymore. No more contact, you're not talking to me. No more pictures of cows on green grass because, you know, it's over. So in the space of um, six months, it was actually a year, we had three natural disasters declared here. So we had this bizarre mini tornado like out of the blue that knocked down trees and fences and just flattened sort of 500-metre section through our place and that was declared a natural disaster. And then we had the drought and then we had the bushfires. So we had the three in the year. You know, and looking back on that in hindsight, that was huge and it was brutal. At the time, you're just going, oh, you know, there's other people worse off. And I think that's what farmers do to get them through. But I think you need, also need to acknowledge that there are times in life when it's really tough. And that was really tough. Yeah. And were you involved with Rural Aid at that time? No, I wasn't involved in Rural Aid at that time. But we had all our cattle back then in confinement and we were reliant on, we'd bought a paddock of canola and it was coming up every week. And one of the people that had organised it said to me, just watch this guy. He might send you a bad bunch of hay or something like that. Just make sure the strings are the same colour, the same amount, whatever. Make sure you're getting your paddock. Anyway, at the time of joining, which was a critical time for the cows in the confinement, he sent us this load of hay that was basically the cows wouldn't eat it. They were starving and they wouldn't eat it. It was rancid. And it was joining time and... One of the guys that I was on the board with at, at Angus Australia, I must have said something to him. Anyway, he was in South Australia and Perry Gunner is his name and within two days I had a load of hay here. Like he just donated us a $17,000 load of hay. Didn't want anything for it and I was just, 
so blown away. So you can be absolutely awful to me and I'll be fine. When I say fine, I'll be fine. But be kind to me and I'll just go to pieces. So that was just the, one of the nicest things anyone's ever done for us. When I found out about Rural Aid, I knew that that was what they were doing for other people. And the other thing, and so I wanted to be a part and I wanted to give back. And so that's why I joined Rural Aid. But the other thing that happened as well is that we ran out of water here. So one of the, we were draining all the dams to feed the cows, water the cows in the, in the, um, confinement area and the boards had cut out which we didn't realize yes yeah, so we're draining all these dams and we're getting to the end of those and one of the dams actually backfilled into our water tank in the house so we had no water as well so rural aid provided us clean water and i mean just that oh just that kindness as i said it's it's just the most powerful thing and i knew that that was that i wanted to help other people that way and that's why i joined rural aid so on the board. What have you learned about the impact that Rural Aid has since you've jumped on the board? Yeah, and it's that it's that power of human kindness. So, you know, you're not going to solve their financial problems overnight, but just knowing that someone cares is profound, deeply profound and so important in its, in its own entirety that you don't really need anything else. You can get through to the next day and the next day and the next day. So now that in rural aid we've also moved on from, you know, to sort of disaster relief and we've moved on to a sort of resilience for the next drought type thing. But a huge part of that that we've been working on really hard is actually that mental well-being. And so we've got counsellors all over the country now and I think that that is the most important work that we're doing and teaching people about mental well-being and keeping and, and that there's someone there that cares and there is hope and, yeah, there is kindness, yeah. Mm. And I think it's it's so... It's so important and it's so easy for people to forget in the moment and it's like, well, it's little things which can have big impacts. Like the unintended consequence of, or unintended impact probably is a better word, of this podcast. But I was chatting to someone a while back and in our community survey, they it came through that like they said, oh, sometimes when I'm out fencing or out the back paddocks or in the hills or whatever it is, like the voices on the podcast are the only voices that I hear during the day. Yes. And, yes. and I think like what came out of the, and I'm, referring to it so much that Norco National Farming Federation mental wellbeing, kind of the state of wellbeing for farmers was that 27% of farmers are saying the biggest negative impact on their mental health is loneliness. And it's like, well, actually there's little things that we can do. Like this chat now might actually just keep someone company in the space that Um, they want to hear another voice. Look, it is absolutely huge. And I know that there's this common line people say, just pick up the phone, call someone. But when you're in that state, it's really hard to do. And sometimes, like you said, the only voices that are coming through are maybe, if, you know, turn on that podcast too is so you don't feel lonely. It's so important when it's so hard to pick up the phone and then maybe then that gives you that little bit of uplift that you might be able to pick up the phone and you might be able to ring your neighbour and just say, this is crap, you know. Mm. You don't have to say anymore and you don't have to fix it. They don't have to fix it. You just have to get someone to acknowledge where you get or you yeah. to acknowledge where you are, yeah. And verbalise it. <laughs> yeah, and you realise that you're not alone. That's like, you know, with my, my next-door neighbour, Colleen, just knowing that we weren't alone and just got, just having a drink and a laugh about it, I said, my God, here we are. Can you believe this? You know, it was huge for both of us. So I've got one other topic I want to ask you about. Well, I don't want to feel like we keep coming back to negatives because I think what's we have these, like, I guess, these inflection points, but then there's actually lots of positives that are coming from it. But yeah, I've heard a story... And it was at a dinner party. So you'd had all these events and things happening, but there was a, a photographer or someone like that who'd been a, an American and someone had been looking at the role that farmers played. And 
and how they were positioning farmers was that farmers were really degrading the planet, which we know is just yeah. not true. Yeah, this is the big one for me. So after we'd had those three natural disasters, as I was talking about, Stewie and I had, and look, I know all this stuff. I know you're meant to get away. You know, I've, I've told other people, worked as a facilitator, you know, you've got to have your breaks, you've got to. But, you know, Stewie and I had worked, I think, every day for 18 months or something, and it was a friend's 50th um, down in near Canberra. And we went and there was this lovely event in the garden. We took our camper trailer. We went and camped because we could afford a motel room. Anyway, we sit down for lunch, and because I'm the type of person that, you know, I love talking to strangers. I love talking to anyone. So they sat me down with these complete strangers. I could see all my mates on a table over there. I'm like, oh, I'll go talk to them a bit. Sitting next to this guy, and we're eating. And I just remember him, and I probably made him into some sort of caricature over time. But anyway, he was wearing a white linen suit and he had blonde tips through his hair and stuff and quite glamorous for a man. And he said to me, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I said, I'm a farmer. And he's eating and he puts down his knife and fork and he goes, it's people like you that are ruining the planet. And I'm like, I was just defenceless because I'd, I'd gone I don't know, I think it was just probably my lowest ebb and I had nothing left to say to him and I just all I, I just remember spitting out like, oh, you know, we're, we're working for the environment. We, we like, he goes, no, you're not. He goes, your farm's got no idea what you're doing. He said, you're ruining the planet. And he was working on a documentary at the time with James Cameron. He's a, he was a camera guy. And he said, you know, we're putting out this documentary and stuff. And anyway, his fiancé was sitting next to me and I just was flabbergasted. And like I said, I didn't finish my meal. I just got up went back to our campsite and I just sat there in this mute silence because at the back of my mind every all the time of being a farmer was to me a noble pursuit and this had just had this realisation that that's not how we were perceived anymore and that really gutted me. I've got to say that was very hurtful and very profound for me. It was that point I sort of went, well, A, are we doing damage? I've got to work that out and if so, if we're doing damage, you've got to face it full on and say, well, maybe we're not noble anymore. But I, at that point, I found that book, which was Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. And I realised at that point that there were things that farmers that are doing that are not working well for the environment, but there is another way. And in actually in that new way, and it was just the timing was amazing because we listened to it as a podcast, as a family, right at the end of the drought. Drought hadn't broken yet. But we actually realised that growing cattle and pastures can actually be part of the solution to climate change. And it was just, not only was it a huge breakthrough for us in terms of what we could do with the farm and how we could have long-term financial stability and family happiness, it was also, oh my gosh, we've also got the trifecta. We can actually do something for the planet as well and have a noble pursuit again. And for me, that, that, was, that was huge. And so that's kept us going as a family. So coming into this next drought, I think that's the backbone that's holding us all really strong now is that we do have a part in the future and it's a really important one. And do you think that like also, I guess that sense of the optimism, but then also the facts and science that you guys have learned through that process going, well, actually, there might be some short-term pain, but it's for the greater good? I didn't know what we didn't know. And, you know, we were there and we poisoned the pasture three times around to put it into fallow so we could put in an industrial or improved, highly improved, highly fertilised pasture during the drought. And, you know, every time there was a hint of rain, we kept spraying it. So we sprayed it for like two years. And then the irony is that when it eventually did rain, there was nothing left to hold the soil together because we'd killed everything. We'd nuked everything. We'd killed 
not only the life above the ground but the life below the ground. So the wind came and there was nothing to hold the soil together and the wind blew away the topsoil and then what was left when it did rain, ironically, it all just went onto the road, onto our main road, much to the delight of all our neighbours. <laughs> picking it up for their vegetable gardens. But, yeah, we didn't know what we were doing was wrong. And I know there are so many farmers that don't know the things that they're doing that aren't helping. And, you know, I'm really glad that we learnt what we learnt. And now I'm, we've actually grown topsoil here and we've got a sustainable, we've got a soil underground. Like we're feeding, we've got so much livestock under the ground and we know that that's going to hold us in good stead going forward. And the other thing is... We're no longer feeding the plants. We're now feeding the soil so the soil feeds the plant. And it's cheaper and it's better. Like, I'm sounding like a snake oil salesman. That's what my family say to me. Mum, they're like, you're getting into that zealot phase. But it's exciting because it, it's not only better for everything, it's cheaper. Yeah. And we can't keep affording to pay all these huge imports because the price is going through the roof. So for me, it's just a win-win. So if you're at that 50th now and sitting across from the... Oh, bleach, no. bleach blonde haired fella. Like, would you be in a different position now? No, like, oh, I'd still put down my knife and fork, but I'd say, mate, put your seatbelt on because I've got something to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, I actually want to see that guy. I don't know in my head now whether he's fictional, even, but you know, I want to see that guy again. I'm not angry about it. Like, they're just. They're trying to do the right thing too. Everyone's trying to do the right thing, but there's so much misinformation out there. And my concern now is that we're not organised enough as a group, as farmers, to tell the story. There are a million smaller groups of farmers all going, oh, my gosh, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, we can be part of the solution. I'm just hoping that we get one spearhead voice that speaks to the people because I went through... That one of the 10th most visited sites in the world the other day at Singapore, the gardens there down on the harbour. And as I walked out, it said, it's got a big sign that says, what you can do for the planet. And one of the things on this list was eat less meat. And I was like, oh, no. You know, we've, we've got a product there that, as I said, can be part of the solution to climate change and the way that they work in well-managed pastures and help those pastures sink more carbon out of the atmosphere. But they're also taking a product which is, plants which people can't eat it's the most abundant plant in the world and they're upgrading it to the most nutrient dense form of protein in the planet which the world needs and yet you've got this misinformation they're saying eat less meat whereas i want people to know that it's actually not only part of the solution for climate change but part of the solution for feeding the world and providing them nutrients instead of just carbohydrates and calories so if you had a magic wand what would you do with it what would you implement oh. I would get all of those guys in a room, all those big businesses in the world in a room that are running those, and I would I would come up with the truth about beef. I'd invite them to ask questions because I think that as an industry that, that we can answer it, or not just beef but farmers, and I would make people pay attention to farmers because, you know, some of the forecasts say we've only got 60 harvests left. You know, unless we start valuing our farmers and preserving our farmland and working all together on it, you know, there's a, there's a real urgency there. So my magic wand would to get all those people in a ring and get them on board. So I've got one other question, Erica, and we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And yeah. If you had the chance to go and chat to Year 10 students about the opportunities in a career in agriculture, what would you tell them and why should they consider it? Oh, I, I say this one 
heavy hearted. I just know that there's a lot of obstacles there for, for younger kids trying to come onto the land because I, I talk to a number of young people, usually young men and women with, with families that don't have land and desperately want to do it. And I see how much drive and passion that they've got for it. But you know what's stopping them or they feel is stopping them is that they don't have land. But what I'm trying to say to them is that you've got this other end of the spectrum of people that are older who don't want to sell the farm and go and live in town. And then you guys don't have land. They don't have someone to work it. So what I would say to those guys in year 10, if they don't have a family farm or something that could be theirs in the future, the first thing I would say to them is that A, go out and earn the right. Go out and do something else. Go out and broaden your horizons, travel the world um, and have something that you can bring back to a business if it's going to be a family business, a family farm. If you don't have land, I would say look at the opportunities that there are in share farming or leasing and building a business from there. But I would also say go into it with your eyes wide open. So if this isn't what you love and live and breathe and want to, you know, raise a family doing, then be aware that it's a really it's a really hard but rewarding career. Yeah. And it's no longer a vocation, it's a profession. Hmm. Yeah. And a noble one. A noble profession. I think we'd miss the opportunity if we didn't talk about very quickly. So World Angus Forum two thousand and twenty five. It's insane to think that's actually going to come around so quickly. But yeah. yeah. What is it and and I guess what's the purpose of the event that you guys are holding in Brizzy? Yeah, so look, our theme is Be for a Better Planet, so it's sort of almost better be for a better planet. So we're looking at not only the technical aspects around beef quality and why beef is so good for you and how can we can improve beef on both an environmental and genetic scale, but we're also looking at the role of beef in the environment and in climate change and in carbon sequestration as well as sort of methods of, of doing that as well as methods of accounting for it because Australia is leading the rest of the world. And so, you know, Angus Australia itself is looking at ways to reduce methane in genetically in beef cattle. We're also, as I said, looking at sort of some regen practices and some, yeah, just all technical aspects around climate change as well and what Fantastic. we can do. Well, and the website's now live, so people can go and check that out. We'll include a link in the show Go notes. and check that out. But I just <laughs> said last night, talking to all these people at this World Angus Secretariat, I said, you know, mostly what they're interested in as well as the cattle, is our all the things that can kill you in Australia. So, so <laughs> yesterday we had a meeting and I said to them, I said, guys, we need that guy with the snake pit actually at the World Angus Forum so that people can come and be educated about Australian snakes and stuff. So we will be doing that. They'll be going to Australia Zoo, you know. That would, that. Yeah. Link the tourism into it. A little bit of tourism into it because most of them are like, I can't come to Australia. I might get bitten by a snake or a spider. Oh. And I said, no, you won't. And they said, have you got snakes at your place? And I went, yeah, but you're fine. Just, you know, and they're like, no, not coming, you know. Um, but, yeah, they're fascinated with Australia. They're fascinated because we've got one of the harshest climates in the world and one of the best genetic, best beef products in the world. So they're coming to see how we actually managed to do that. Gosh, we have a bit of fun with that one, I think, in the lead up. <laughs> and probably wine. They're probably here for our wine as well, so. Plenty of reasons to come. Look, beef, wine, coffee, they're the three things we do really well. Yep, and seafood. Oh, yes, seafood, absolutely. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining us for a bit of a chat. I know you've literally just hopped off the plane, so thank you for making the time and enjoy settling back in and, and grabbing those reins back off your children. 
I'm quite happy sitting here talking to you and they're doing a great job out there, so. <laughs> uh, well, that's it for another episode from us here at Humans of Agriculture. We hope you're enjoying these podcasts and, well, if you're not, let us know. Hit us up at hello at humansofagriculture.com. Get in touch with any guest recommendations, topics, or things you'd like us to talk and get curious about. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Rate, subscribe, review it. Any feedback is absolutely awesome and we really do welcome it. So look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane. We'll see you next time. See ya.